Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Innovation and invention move fast, and as new technology is created, our old computers end up as yesterday's trash. The Computer Museum of America aims to preserve the history of the digital revolution while empowering the innovators of the future. Later in the program, City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy takes us on a visit to the Computer Museum in Atlanta, the only one of its kind in the Southeast. First... Diverse artists and rich traditions are on display during the Atlanta Southeast Craft Week. This event of the American Craft Council features works for sale from over 200 artists online, and there will be a live pop-up September 23rd through the 25th in Buckhead Village. Lynn Pollard is one of the organizers of the event. She joins me now via Zoom with two of the featured artists, Sibia Mushtaba and Maria White. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lynn, what can you tell us about the American Craft Council? Well, we are the national organization, nonprofit organization of American craft. We came out of the studio craft movement and we have library and archives. We have an incredible magazine and we do trade show style shows, or at least we did in the past. We are currently doing primarily online shows. But Atlanta's Southeast craft week is going to have this live pop-up at Buckhead Village, the 23rd through the 25th. What will be featured at the pop-up? Well, we focused on all Southeastern artists. We wanted to show the great breadth and depth of craft in the Southeast. We have just starting out, but super young craftspeople. We have the work of old masters. We have gallery work. We have traditional craft show work. We even have some pieces that are so special that they're not for sale. We're just presenting them for people to see what Southeastern craft is about. Mm. Sabiha, I was struck by the beauty of your artist statement that you use wood as the canvas for your artistic expression. What drew you to woodworking? I actually have a background in sculpture. And when I was at college, at art school, it was integrated with a building school, a trades building school. So we were able to go to lots of different materials and investigate how they were made on the trade side. And I just fell in love with two of the things that I did. We did lots of plaster and clay and brickwork and laying and woodworking and um, metal smithing. So woodworking and metal smithing became one of the most important things I enjoyed. 
And when I uh, moved to Georgia and Atlanta, I was actually given an opportunity to apprentice with a woodworking shop. And that's where my career started as an apprentice several years ago. And your interest in metalworking, was that something passed along to your daughter? I know she is a jewelry artist. Right, right. Yeah, she's a, well, uh, I suppose when I say metalsmithing, I, I suppose I meant like ironwork when I was doing oh, that with okay. uh, welding and forging and things like that. That was one of the things I learned. But I don't think it influenced her. I think (laughs) well, that would have been large scale work you were doing. I I, I think it probably would have been, yes. (laughs) Much too large to wear around one's neck. I'd say. What is it like sharing a studio? Well, we have studio independently, but when we when we do collaborate in the sense of um, ideas with each other, I thoroughly enjoy it. I mean, uh, watching my daughter grow up and become a wonderful artisan in jewelry has been amazing to see. I mean, she's so strong, but much more so than I was when I was her age. And, you know, being, being able to share our art ideas and touching each other's wellness and being and how we're doing as far as our artist mother-daughter kind of relationship is going as well. That's, that's really been very wonderful for both of us. How does your Pakistani or South Asian background influence your designs? I think it does quite a lot, more because of my life experience, maybe, rather than any, you know, political or uh, situations that might be happening right now. It's more of a case of my cultural growing up. In England, actually, I, I left when I was 10 years old and moved to England when I was doing sculpture, it really didn't have much of an influence on me. It was really when I started doing furniture making and designing that I delved into my background a little bit more and ideas came through from my Asian heritage, South Asian heritage. What kinds of works do you create for your clients? Almost anything <laughs> they, they would like. First of all, it's, it's almost like a collaborative experience with the client. And I like to get as much information from them as possible about the item that they want. And it could be a wall unit, it could be a carving, it could be a piece of furniture. And we look at how they want to see it and the space that they're going to put it in. So when I when I get that kind of information, it gives me a lot more openness to actually delve into my ideas for them. So normally what I do is I give them uh, three or four ideas and we go back and forth with how we can mix some of them together or use just one and work on that a little bit more. And sometimes they're open for my using my cultural background images and others it's fairly straightforward. Yes, this is a piece of furniture. It fits well in my home. It's one of a kind. And that's what I want. So it becomes very collaborative in that sense. And I enjoy that very much because it also gives me lots of my own independent ideas. And typically when there are three or four ideas, one or two of them will give me a springboard to move forward with my own thoughts and ideas and and for future works that I might want to do as a speculative piece. You mentioned some images from your heritage. Would you describe the type of image? Yes. In fact, the chair that I will be showing at the show, at the pop-up, it is uh, called the Bharat Natyam dancer chair. So Bharat Natyam is a form of Indian dancing. And I would say Indian because that's where the origins have been of this style of dancing for centuries. I used to be a student, just like lots of Western girls do ballet. This was my ballet, in a sense. So when I was growing up as a teenager in England, uh, my parents enrolled me in uh, the dancing school. And it was run by a couple of Indian dancers, fairly well known during those years. When I went to start looking at incorporating my cultural themes in my work, 
they filtered in over time with different things, but this particular one, I really wanted to do as an interpretation of a chair, because when you think about a chair, you think of arms and legs and back and, and seats and hands, you know, and I, I just started designing it around the theme of dance as well, because dancing is very, very expressive and the hands and the arms and the clothing are very um, beautiful. They're very dramatic. And I felt that putting that in a, in a piece of furniture would be interesting. So that's what I did. <laughs> it's beautiful, very Thank fluid. You. Thank you. You can feel the movement in this stationary chair. Maria, you are based in Charleston, South Carolina, I read. How did your career begin as a professional potter? Well, my career began really in Los Angeles. I went to undergraduate school in South Carolina, which is where I learned to make pots. And then I went on to study at Penland School of Craft and then moved to Los Angeles and was there for 13 years and really grew my career there. And then my husband and I moved back with our small, very small children at the time, seven years ago. So we've been in Charleston seven years now. Hmm. And you are of Mexican-American background. Yes. I love Mexican pottery and <laughs> have a fair number of pieces. Did any of that influence your decision to work in ceramics? Actually, it did not. Um, my background um, with my Mexican family um, is a little complicated. Uh, my mother, who is first generation Mexican-American, her parents, my grandparents, immigrated from Guadalajara, Michoacan uh, in the 50s and passed away before I knew them. And then my mother died when I was young. So I always grew up around her making things and sewing, which she learned from her mother and she was an artist. So I definitely feel her influence in craft and in art, but I did not directly have, unfortunately, that cultural influence growing up. But as an adult, I have passionately been connecting with cousins and family in Mexico and have found so much inspiration with the excellence and craft that exists in Mexican work, Mexican craft. I am always um, inspired by it. Uh, my work tends to be uh, very simple in form. I definitely find in all sorts of, from the indigenous makers of Mexico um, to contemporary Mexican art, very inspiring to my work and encouraging always. Would you further describe your style of pottery and ceramic pieces? Yes, um, I would describe my work as sort of understated and very simple in form. I definitely am inspired by mid-century works. I love a really clean, elegant form. However, I really enjoy playing with texture and light, capturing light on a facet or absorbing light and shadows. I create a line of translucent works and I love doing those in groupings. And um, I will say with my Latin American heritage, we celebrate of course, uh, Dia de los Puertos every year. And that has become a huge part of my family and what we do every year. And um, the use of lights and light in remembrance of those who we've lost is I think a really beautiful way to celebrate and as ritual even daily. So I'm very interested in how translucent a clay body is, the shape of the form, and how light may dance or be absorbed in a piece. Um, but I would say, uh, if you could describe them in one word, they're very um, organic, and but at the same time, uh, very modern and simple. Mm. I read that you created ceramics for TV and movie sets. <laughs> Yes. Is that how you got involved in the film industry yourself? Not exactly. I, I've always enjoyed filmmaking. I was a young volunteer at the Sundance uh, Film Festival 
and that festival has been a really, the Institute has been a really great place um, to make films and, and be inspired by filmmakers. But being in LA in that industry, certain production designers and certain um, opportunities presented themselves where I could create works for the sets. So um, it's fun to invade a movie or television set once in a while with one of my pots. You may have to look very quickly. <laughs> oh, but I, I can imagine what fun and your interest in mid-century modern aesthetics. Did you do anything for Mad Men? So I wish, no, but I will tell you, there's a restaurant in LA called Jar and I was commissioned to do the work for that restaurant and it is a very mid-century restaurant. And it was um, in the film La La Land. You can see my pieces on the tables. Oh. And so I was very excited that the production designer decided to still keep them in, in the movie. <laughs> oh, but, but, but was Emma Stone dancing on top of that table? <laughs> I, I wish. hope she didn't bump into it. I wish. It's when she, she leaves her boyfriend for the, her love. <laughs> oh, what have been some of the films you've directed or created? So about 10 years ago, I directed a documentary about uh, female hunters in the Southeast. I was very intrigued by these women and their connection to nature and to hunting and the cultural aspects of that. And I did that and that film went to Sundance and was fortunate to earn the audience award there for um, best short documentary. And that really encouraged me to keep doing non-scripted stories. And then a couple of years ago, I was uh, hired along with my husband, who I often collaborate with, Matthew Mebbin, to create a docu-series for uh, Michael Sherrill, who is an artist that had a retrospective show at the Mint Museum of Craft and Design and that went on to the Smithsonian. So for me, that was a huge honor to make a film about his work and I had apprenticed with him. So it was sort of like both of my passions coming together. Um, and I'd love to do more of that kind of storytelling. I'm very interested in, in makers and just and stories that are compelling on many levels. The multi-talented artist Maria White, Lynn Pollard, one of the organizers of the American Craft Council Atlanta Southeast Craft Week, and woodwork artist Sibia Mushtaba. The Craft Week live pop-up hosted by Buckhead Village is happening this week, beginning Thursday evening through Saturday. More information about the expo is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy takes us inside the Computer Museum of America. You're tuned to WABE at Light. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Innovation and invention move fast. And as new technology is created, our old computers end up as yesterday's trash. The Computer Museum of America aims to preserve the history of the digital revolution while empowering the innovators of the future. City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy visited the museum, the only one of its kind in the Southeast. 
The Computer Museum of America is part history museum, part art exhibition, and part technology showcase. Nestled between a movie theater and a putt-putt golf course in Roswell, the museum houses the largest collection of Cray supercomputers, as well as many historical and nostalgic artifacts. I spoke with Rena Youngblood, the museum's executive director. I wanted to know, what is a computer museum, and what can one expect when they get there? Yeah, you know, it is a different museum, and you're not going to find this in the southeast. We don't have too many attractions like this, which is really fun for the metro Atlanta area to have, especially with the growing tech sector that we are supporting from every angle within our city. So when people come to the Computer Museum of America, there's a bit of nostalgia because this history does not go back too, too far. So a lot of people have used a punch card machine. They are like me. They remember getting their bag phone. Things like that. The toys that we played with in the 80s that were digital or electronic. Lots of the games, you know, people can sit down here and play Pac-Man on a 1981 Atari. So there's a bit of this nostalgia. Uh, What we do recognize and what we work hard to do is that a lot of the things that are here, we're starting to lose the people who can tell us the stories. And we've got to capture that and we need to preserve it because we truly, truly believe that by preserving this this past, we're going to create people who are going to innovate more in the future. And so that's that's just kind of a core belief of ours. We've got to preserve it, we've got to tell the stories, and it will inspire the future. Yeah, it's kind of a history museum, actually. It really is a history museum. It is. Now, it's an interesting history museum because you go into many of them, people would not reach out and touch things in other history museums. They would not reach out and touch that, you know, Picasso that's, you know, at the museum. They just wouldn't. But here, computers, people do reach out. Some of them remember working on them. And we have our own computers. We, we hold them every single day. And so, you know, we are trying to preserve these pieces uh, as well. We want them to be here 150 years from now. But you do have some things you can play because you have the the little arcade game. And I want you to tell me about the sink, the 20-second hand-washing sink. How did that, what what goes on with that? Can you describe it? Yes. The Computer Museum of America had some pop-up exhibits for a few years before they opened permanently here in 2019. Uh, At the time, they had something that was called the Hygiene Monkey, and you were to wash your hands, and they had a little program, and had this monkey that was, you know, crawling up a vine. One of the students who helped put that together, one of the SCAD students, has set out on his own, and he is doing this now uh, as a business. And so you can come here, now it's programmed with the Raspberry Pi, and uh, you can just put the motion under the sink, and it lets you know that you've been washing your hands for 20 seconds. Uh, if the monkey falls off the vine, you you didn't do it, kind of gamifying this habit that we all should have. Is he going to make it? Keep washing. Keep washing. You made it. And then at the end, it will give you the data. End of the day, you've had 10 people who did it correctly and 20 who did not, or whatever it is. So it is something that a business, you know, may want to, a school may want to install just to help children know what they're doing. Tell me about the Nook look and the loom that's in the look oh, Nook right now. Gosh, that's one of my favorite pieces. So the Nook look is not a full-blown exhibit, but we have a lot of people who stop by, and they might say something like, oh, I wish you had. What's on the floor today is somewhere between 1% and 2% of the available collection. So it's huge. It's many, many, many thousands of pieces. Now, that is all from huge supercomputers to two small mugs uh, that might have been carried in the 70s by an IBM employee. So it's a lot, a lot of different things. But the Nook Look allows us to bring things out, and then who knows when they'll come out again. So right now in the Nook Look is the Jacquard Loom. It is a weaving loom. You can see some fabric there. But what it did was they used punch cards to let the loom know where to put certain threads. So suddenly you have patterns and, you know, things that are just a little prettier than every day. Up until this loom, only the wealthy had these more 
intricate fabrics on their dresses and, and outfits because you had to have a master weaver. And so now you could use unskilled labor to create some things that many, many other people could wear. And so um, we're read that Charles Babbage was inspired by this idea, and he is the one who is credited with modern computing using punch cards with his um, analytical machine and uh, differential machine. And so, yeah, it's just a really, really neat piece, and it's kind of the first step in that evolution of punch card computing, and we, of course, have a punch card machine that we love pulling out once a month, giving demos. We let people sit down and punch a card, and it's just a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting that the weaving materials and like that kind of art really got a lot out of science and computing. Yeah. That's so yeah. crazy. Um, it's neat that you have it too. And I got to try out the punch card machine for myself. And then after seeing the jacquard loom, you almost see the evolution. Yeah. How that works. Yeah. yeah. Rena took me on a little tour of the museum, and the first thing we saw was an 1,100-square-foot graphic showcasing a timeline of technology. It takes you from the year 1500 to the present, denoting the inventions of different kinds of technology and what else was going on in the world at that time. What makes it so, so different is that we want to highlight, of course, the, the computing, the, the technology, people, and products, but we know that people visiting aren't all going to say, I'm a techie and I understand it all. So we tried to put it in a more cultural context. So here you may be someone who loves cars. You may be someone who loves pop culture. You find that area that just really interests you. And you can just look down and see what was happening and all the other things. At the children's eye level, you've got games, you've got superheroes when they came out. And so it's just a really, really interesting exhibit and we don't think anyone has done anything quite so extensive. We love this exhibit and, and people will spend hours in front of it. Yeah, this is a lot of uh, info. <laughs> Starting at 1500 and going, yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah, look at this uh, first computer mouse. That is so funny. That's wild. We love the rotary phone. The I was kids. just going to say. We have one up at, uh, in the gift shop, and people can play with it. And most children understand the numbers. They understand a phone number, but it's kind of cute. Many don't know to pick up the receiver, so uh. they don't get that part. <laughs> Down here, this is a Magnavox Odyssey. It was really the first gaming console. And I see Atari. Atari, we do. <laughs> we have that and the E.T. game that was considered quite the bust at the time. So, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the real gamers, they know that when they see it, they laugh. Over here is our retro gaming corner. So this is the space where you can um, play Donkey Kong on one of the early Nintendos or Pac-Man on an Atari. There's a TRS-80. It's a little hands-on, but you really are hands-on with artifacts. This is the Byte Wall exhibit. Byte Magazine was a hobbyist magazine, uh, ran from 75 to 98. Robert Tinney did a lot of the original covers, and these two pieces here are the original works. So we you know, try to keep bringing this art into the museum. When you look at the art of the earlier covers, you just see things that had to be science fiction at the time. So here we've got the That's Race cool. to Space, gives you a lot of the history some of the pieces in here, the dioramas are fantastic. And then the cases have some things that the founder just has had. As a matter of fact, he wrote Neil Armstrong as a child after he walked on the moon. And Neil wrote him back with his signed picture. So. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. <laughs> Rena told me a little bit about the new series that the Computer Museum of America is offering. It's an adults-only after-hours series called Bites, Brews, and Bourbon. This is exciting. This is a series that we're going to do each and every year, and it allowed us a chance to create a, a series for adults. It's a 21-plus event that we can 
pull out something new. We can uh, unveil a new exhibit. So back in June at our second Bites and Brews, we unveiled a Cray 2 that had been owned by NASA. Our Cray 2 was used for 10 years with flight tests and things by NASA. Uh, so it was a really fun exhibit piece to pull out and, and kind of just show people. The very first Bites, Brews, and Bourbon was in April. And both of those, I can say, too, we, we capped how many people came in, unsure, you know, the safety and, and all of that. So we wanted to make sure we did the right thing there. Uh, so the April one, we did computers in the movies. It allows people to see when certain special effects were used for the first time and different things like that. And then a fun part where, you know, computers are characters. So think Terminator, think Hal. Um, so it's a, it's a fun exhibit. The next Bites, Brews, and Bourbon, there will be a highlight of uh, some World War II technology. We will have some bomb sites that have been uh, donated to the museum by a collector and really help us to see the calculations and math that was involved in what was you know had to be done in, during World War II. We have some communication devices. Uh, this is in addition to the Enigma machine that is on permanent exhibit right now. We have an author who has written a book about her mother who worked at Bletchley Park. She was at the secret Bletchley Park. And the foreword for her book was written by Alan Turing's nephew. So we're just going to make it sort of this World War II technology theme, which I think is, is very interesting. And it, it's not so far back that you can't see where we are now based on some of the things that were being done at that time. It's pretty special that you guys have that Enigma machine, right? Because there's there's not many left in working condition. There really aren't. And for people that might not know what the Enigma was used for, can you talk about that? Yeah, the Enigma was a secret code that the Nazis used during World War II. Uh, they said it was an unbreakable code, and so we had to make sure that it was broken. There's some history with it. There were people in Poland who began breaking the code before it was invaded. They turned over what they learned to the folks in England in Bletchley Park. Alan Turing sort of headed up that, that group of people that ended up breaking the code. And then you can go a step further, and NCR, a company that's based in, in Atlanta, they were in Ohio at the time, had an engineer who created a machine that broke the code even faster. And so by the end of uh, World War II, I believe we were breaking most of what was happening in the Atlantic. The Computer Museum's next Bites and Brews event. That's B-Y-T-E-S, B-R-E-W-S. That event is Thursday and includes live music, plus a conversation with Jan Slimming about her book, Codebreaker Girls, A Secret Life at Bletchley Park. The book tells the true story of Daisy Lawrence and her experiences during World War II working at the top-secret Bletchley Park Code and Cipher Agency. In a moment, we'll go beyond the neighborhood with music of Fred Rogers. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When you think of jazz greats, Mr. Rogers doesn't come to mind first, but vocalist Carrie Johns wrote and Grammy-nominated pianist Kevin Bales would like to change that. Johns wrote and Bales are behind a tribute to the music of the cardigan-clad children's TV pioneer when they released their album Beyond the Neighborhood. They joined me in the WABE studios, and Bale started by explaining how his introduction to jazz came from Mr. Rogers. I was at home, sick with mononucleosis back in the UHF, VHF days, and Mr. Rogers came on every day about the time I woke up from a nap, 
and I discovered that he had a live jazz trio on every show. Now I was, I was um, 17 years old at this point. You know, not someone who normally would be watching Mr. Rogers. You think, but the music was amazing. I noticed at the very end of the show. When the credits would run, you know, sponsored by Sears and Roebuck, and you had the little toy Pittsburgh neighborhood there, that the pianist on the show would just unleash with this unbelievable imagination on all of the music they had just played. It was fascinating to me. I started listening to every episode just for those last few minutes. Then a little later in life, after I've decided to become a jazz musician, I'm working hard and studying. Um, I fell in love with all of American popular song. We're talking about Jerome Kern and mm. George Gershwin and my favorite, Richard Rogers. And I was performing at Rollins College down in Florida. And they had an auditorium called Rogers Hall. And I asked them, when did Richard Rogers live here? And they said, oh, no, 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 that was Fred Rogers. Ah. I was like, who is Fred Rogers? They're like, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> he, I found out he, he had a, a, a degree in music composition. And Carrie and I both kind of discovered that we shared a love of his music. And we started researching songs we might do on a, on a future project. And discovered he wrote almost every song on that show, including... I'm not kidding. Thirteen operas. Oh wow! Yeah, he he he's a full musician. He really is, and uh, I'm pretty sure my first jazz influence is listening to that show, even as a child. Before I certainly would have known what the word jazz was. My goodness. Well, I know his wife, Joanne Rogers, is a serious classical musician. In fact, for many years. She was part of a duo with Janine Morrison, who taught at Clayton State University. Right, yeah. So music certainly permeated the household. And um, you may know that uh, the producer of the popular documentary about Mr. Rogers is Nicholas Ma, who's the son of Yo-Yo Ma. Right. So, yes, music surrounds everything. And as with so much that he did with such grace, he introduced children to jazz. And, and here you are as living proof, no longer children. Your training was initially as a classical musician and and this could go for you both. When you return to Mr. Mr. Rogers' music now, what are you hearing in the music? Well, it, like uh, Kevin alluded to, his music, his composition skills were, were really sophisticated. And so as an adult, I can look at the music or hear the music from a different viewpoint. Being involved in music uh, as a career you pick up on the little intricities and the little chord changes and and how he composed the music. And it, it's a really interesting and, and beautiful uh, uh, way of, of going about creating music. And it's something that I certainly didn't pick up on when I was younger and watching the show. I was completely oblivious to that fact. But as a working musician and, and looking back on his compositions, it's amazing how creative and um, masterful he really was with with what he wrote. Well, I think that is part of the ongoing beauty of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Sesame Street as well, the public television children's shows that work on many levels. You don't have to be a young child to enjoy them. You certainly can benefit from that. But the approach was so thoughtful and sophisticated and never condescending mm -hmm. no. that regardless of one's age, you could enjoy it just as you were a teenager, Kevin. And it's remarkable, these, these songs of his, which are definitely crafted with the same level of depth as, as the other great American popular songwriters. They, the lyrics often are meant for everyone. I mean, they, they, he did present them on a children's show, 
but he was very well aware that parents were watching with their children. Of course, mm-hmm. and we've been talking so much about the music and your two, the two of you, your collaboration. Let's listen to some examples. We have 11 of them. Um, where shall we begin? Mm, well, we could start with the title or with the first track. It's You I Like. Let's hear it. Um, and briefly, I learned this song from Wynton Marsalis playing it on his show. He was a guest there. So that's where we transcribed it from. Okay. So this comes with um, quite an anointment, if you will. It's you I like Not the things you wear Not the way you do your hair But it's you I like The way you are right now The way down deep inside you Not the things that hide you Not your toys They're just beside you But it's you I like Every part of you Your skin, your eyes, your feelings Whether old or new I hope that you'll remember Even when you're feeling blue That it's you I like It's you yourself It's you It's you I like It's you I like It's not the things you wear Not the way you do your hair But it's you I like The way you are right now The way down deep inside you And not the things that hide you Not your toys They're just beside you But it's you Okay, you're talking about toys and delivering a very important message, but um, there is an aura of romance, Carrie, (laughs) that I'm taking away from this and some really sophisticated, maybe kind of, you know, Bobby Short, Cafe Carlisle (laughs) style on your part there, Kevin. Thank you. So I I guess this is just one example of how multifaceted this music was of his. Yes, it reaches everyone, I think. It's always uplifting, though, and it, he, he, he talks so much about how to talk to children and and his thoughts about all of this. And the songs are written with so much love and craft of music itself. It's really apparent to me that he had to put that aside in favor of being an advocate for children. But when I say aside, not not completely, just made it a little secondary, and yet he still included it. He found a way of including this deep love of the musical art, including in what he's doing. and. Because he he almost was in love with it first, I think. Well, and he was also an ordained minister. Mm-hmm. Wasn't yeah, that was after his music degree, though. So it, it's it's all part of that same soul mm-hmm. he had. I agree. Yeah, that ability to to reach what's best, or certainly to preach what's best in in the most. Um, humanitarian sort of way. I guess I continue to marvel at how many adults cite him as a role model, uh, Yo-Yo Ma, Mm -hmm. among them as well. So it's you I like, and and I I felt um, not in any way that you were derivative, but really much uh, in the spirit of Ella Fitzgerald, Rosemary Clooney, uh, you know, just this great American songbook kind of take on this music. What should we hear next? Hmm. Contrast or continuing in the upbeat way? Let's do Just For Once. It's the next song, which is also very romantic sounding. Just For Once. Thank you. 
just for once Just for once I want you all to myself Just for once Let's be alone With nobody else to tell are we aiming this to? <laughs> well, I think uh, this song, like with the rest of them, I think we tried to put an adult perspective on these tunes, um, but really songs that could be heard by multi-generations. Um, we grew up with this program, and so we obviously want to give our, our, our perspective on what these songs may mean to us now. And that was, again, alluding to the the comp- composition skills of Fred, that his message that he may have originally directed towards children is really a message that can be uh, across, you know, used across the generations. We as adults can definitely get something out of these out of these tunes or out of this message, just like we did as children. And um, I think our interpretation is is that of you know, what we've gone through in life and and what those songs mean to us today. And not only across ages, but Mm -hmm. across cultures. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Whether a child would like to be alone Mm -hmm. with mommy or daddy or sister, brother. Um, Just for once. Yeah. 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 There is um, a lot of thought in the arrangements, Kevin, would you talk about that? You have some fine backup. It's kind of it's kind of fun. You know, one of my favorite things about his show, even as a child, was when he would go out to the music store, and in the back of the store, all these musicians would be playing, and maybe they would be rehearsing, and then they would interact with them, and they'd be having a jam session, basically. And that's the first time I saw Winter Marcellus. Um, Mary Lou Williams, the great pianist, was on the show teaching one of Fred's opera singers how to scat. And, of course, Yo-Yo Ma was on there a whole many, many times, and many other musicians. And the, the idea that Fred wrote these great songs and that he was inclusive even to the musicians that would play him. During the show, the great pianist, uh, Johnny Costas there, was playing all kinds of stuff there. So when we did this record, I came up with just the basic ideas for each song. We wanted to keep the chords and the melodies and the lyrics, what Fred intended. And I got together with two of my favorite collaborators, the great bass player, Billy Thornton, who now resides here, and Marlon Patton, just one of the best drummers I've ever met. And we got together and in the studio, crafted these things together in a true neighborhood fashion. Uh It's almost all first takes. You're kidding. We, we, we scheduled two days for this, and we finished it in almost one day. It was just one of these um, magical days in the studio. It was so easy and effortless. And I'm really proud of the recording, not just because of the arrangements Maya have done, but because every person who's playing on it, their, their individuality is really captured. As individuals, they get to be themselves. And there's so many moments that like, oh, that's Billy there. He came up with that. And, oh, I'm hearing that bass initially. And I think, I think this is something Mr. Rogers would have liked. This just idea of inclusion and acceptance sharing. and cooperate. Sharing, that's the best word. Yes. How did you two meet? Well, we actually met in Chicago, uh, where I'm from. And we met at a, at, a Chicago, at the Chicago Jazz Fest through a mutual friend. And... Um, it turns out that uh, we were going to be in the same city the following week. He was going to be performing there, and uh, I'm, I was like, "Fine, I'll go. I'll go hear you play. I'll be there too." And so we ended up meeting up, and then we just started talking about collaborating. We hadn't, or he hadn't heard me 
perform or sing at the time. But there was, we just had a chemistry and we felt that, you know, this is something that we should explore professionally. So we decided maybe we'll start writing some tunes. And that's how it started. We actually uh, recorded an album before this one that was all original music. And then we decided to work on this project together again, too. Oh, time is flying by, but I was hoping that we could hear a little bit about Troll Talk. Yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah, let's hear just a little bit of this. If my ears are not deceiving me or distracted by your gorgeous mellow tone, that is not English, is it? <laughs> what is it? It's the language of gibberish. <laughs> of course it is. And this is how trolls speak. Mm-hmm. Of Who course knew? they do. Who yes. knew? The documentary we mentioned earlier, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which coincided with the 50th anniversary of the show. What do you think ultimately accounts for the enduring appeal of Mr. Rogers? Well, I think it, his message is timeless. And I think that uh, it's something that we all could hear um, nowadays and we need to be reminded about. And I think that it's just, he's a magnificent human. Again, I think it's just it's the timelessness of his message. Vocalist Carrie Johns wrote and pianist Kevin Bales. More information about their album, Beyond the Neighborhood, the music of Fred Rogers, is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the Out on Film Festival starts this week, and we'll talk to festival director Jim Farmer with film director T.J. Parcell. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.